0: All right. We are continuing with Lesson 11, which is called Practicality and Investments. And uh, this is a very, very interesting lesson. I think this lesson, more than any other lesson, really talks about the nature of money, the illusions of money, and that's a little bit what I want to talk about. Last week, I was talking mostly about his predictions about um, what might be happening. Why don't you all move over a little? Because you're all like, right here, the camera's there. It's just crazy. So just split yourselves yeah, back, duck down. Duck down. <laughs> Too late. Sorry. Okay. No problem. Thank you very much. Otherwise, I'm going to get a crick in my neck. Thank you so much. Um, all right. Last week, I was talking about the you know possibility of cataclysms and a lot about um, the attitude of the masters toward hard times and the attitudes that we ought to have. I was just... This is just you know, in the last few months, the last years or two, you know, everything in our worlds have been just flowing really beautifully. The Swami initiations, everything is so uplifting. And I I guess sort of, it crosses my mind, you know, like, are we going to look back on this as sort of the last easy period before something? Because there's always, things are up and down. We can't just expect that it'll be. We had all those years of great persecution and struggle. We had a few years here where we were, just somehow things were stagnant, we weren't really making good progress now everything seems to be really lively again. You just wonder what the next thing will be. So when Swamiji talks about this, um, these difficulties that are coming, i I just keep wondering he he was it he who was saying it? Yeah, I think he was telling me that th- there's a, a true the, a true fact that there was some kind of a spiritual group right in the middle of one of the Japanese cities where the uh, atomic bomb was dropped. And they were not affected. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, do you know what the truth of that is? Uh-huh, what? but I was just thinking... Uh-huh.
1: It just struck me when I was reading this um, lesson um, earlier today that a lot of the things that he talked about have been happening... Right. in terms of this recent depression mm-hmm. and all of these things. And uh, later on in the lesson, he talks about how um, uh, people's expectations will need to be lowered in terms of what they need and what they have to have and all right. that, but eventually there will be peace and harmony. And I'm thinking, well, maybe part of what's happening is that we we are drawing people who are beginning to realize catastrophic things that are happening and that they need to be thinking about other things. And we are one of those places that people can begin to see another way. So it was just interesting to me because it it felt as if he wrote this, what, three years ago, four years ago? Has it been longer? No, it was longer than that. He started it when he, he started
0: when he really went to India, so the 2004,
1: th- 2005. Right, so it's uh-huh. really quite interesting to me.
0: Oh, that already in just these few years, it's, it's copyrighted 2005.
1: Yeah, so uh-huh. it's, it's really quite interesting what's been happening in terms of natural disasters and yeah. all of these things. And here yeah. we are growing and feeling like there's a, there's a, a real positive...
0: Uh, ha- happening in Ananda everywhere. Well, so. Swamiji always said that Ananda would thrive during these times because the whole point of all this happening is to be a gateway to have people turn closer to God. And um, so we're we we've been working all this time to put ourselves into a position of being able to serve more and more. Um, so uh, that's only natural. What th- you know what that means, but we're not. Um, we 're not dependent so much on the things that we have we we have a, a profound inner life. I remember um, let 's see now where was that exact statement but I know it was the the comment from richard wurmbrand 's wife Sabina richard wurmbrand was the is the evangelical preacher who from from Rum, Romania actually i think romania i 'm pretty sure and he was for, he was a Jew, He was a Jewish convert, so when the Nazis came, he was persecuted as a Jew, and then when the communists came, he was persecuted as a Christian. so he spent a lot of his life experiencing that, and his wife was also imprisoned, and uh, she they're both very great, deep spiritual souls. She said that imprisonment was the most difficult for the socialites, because he said, she said they just had nothing except what they were able to have outwardly. You know, their clothes, their parties, their their whole wealth-oriented way of living. And when all that material was taken away, they just, you know, as, as a group, individuals would be exceptions, they just didn't have anything else. They didn't have any other reality. People who were spiritual, of course, had spirituality, but even people who were intellectual or educated or artistic had some self-generated inner life that when they lost the external things, they they still had something that was substantially them. Um, You know, I've often joked about myself that, you know, if a lot of my body ceased to function, if my mind still worked, I live so much through my mind where other people are very active. They're used to being able to run around or they do things physically. You know, everybody's different. If you lose different parts of you, you have different feelings about it. But if you're all externalized... So self-evidently, um, everything that we teach, it's, it's, it's twofold. It's the, it's the comfort. It's, it's the place where people will be able to stand strong even if external conditions have shifted radically for them because it's a, it's a reality not based on external conditions. Um, and it also is the, the actual solution... Uh, let me say, it's the counterbalancing karmic energy to to the reason why all this is happening anyway. I remember vividly when the, whoever it was was trying to get Swamiji to throw the weight of Ananda behind his particular expression of the ecology movement. And he really wanted Ananda to become quite committed to whatever aspect of ecology he was trying to um, deal with. And Swami was polite to the man, but he finally said, he said, look, if everyone lived the way Ananda lives, we wouldn't have any of these problems. So, so that doesn't mean that we have a light footprint in the way they say that or that we recycle more than other people do. It's much more fundamental than that, that the, 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 the magnetic forces that are drawing the cataclysm to us are being countered by the vibrations of Ananda. And, and so the, the, the consciousness of Ananda is the antidote because this is really a battle of consciousness, and I, last week I talked about how Master said that that the it's necessary to respect the subtle forces that that g- guide the natural world. you know the way farmers used to work with the soil that used to work with planting, used to work with crops, there was a respect for the natural order there wasn't this thought. Oh, we can jack this aspect of it up and we can jack that aspect of it up and we can pour these chemicals into it and we can do it with machines and we can make it so much more productive and, and then it all turns into how much money can we get out of this land and then it turns into subsidies for crops you're not even growing and, you know, the, the whole thing, the whole rhythm where there was a people who, who lived on the land and loved the land and took care of it and and not not merely that they, they farmed in a more ecological way, but their whole consciousness. They were in relationship to the land. It wasn't for them merely a source of um, how to get more and more money out of it. They had a relationship with it. You know, They'd handed it down for, through the families. And all of those aspects of it all play into it. It's not just if everybody composts, it'll be okay. If everybody composts with a completely atheistic lack of appreciation for the divine. If they just compost out of ego uh, with still having the same fundamental idea that ego is a supreme reality, we're still going to be out of balance. So everything about turning to God is the um, counterweight. And Swamiji says, you know, if everyone turned to God, then that would mitigate these realities. And the extent to which people have turned to God, it has mitigated But common sense says, you look around and you just see hatred and violence increasing everywhere. And you see pockets of hope, because naturally, um, the seeds of the future are being planted in the present. That's the only way it would work, because Swamiji says planets are annihilated for one of two reasons. He said they either become entirely good, and then everybody ascends, I suppose, (laughs) Or they become entirely bad and they blow themselves to bits, really, literally to bits. But he says that's not, neither of those things is going to happen here. What's going to happen is what Master describes is a conflagration in which these intense imbalances finally tip the scale. And, the, and imbalances are of consciousness, of atheism, of, of natural um, uh, raping of the earth in which the the conscious force, which is the earth, strikes back because it just gets sick of it. And all those dissonant vibrations just bring about cyclones and hurricanes and weather changes and all the things that we're seeing. Um, and it's just what we see going on around us. But Swamiji, in a, something I was listening to recording, he was talking about somebody who does a hypnotic regression and regress people back to the to the astral world space before this incarnation. And Swami just said, I'm not going to make any comment about the work that she's doing or anything. He said, but here's what's interesting. Many of them spoke of coming into this world at a time when there would be great cataclysmic shifts and none of them spoke about it fearfully in the space before they were born. They all spoke about it as a time of tremendous spiritual opportunity and how eager they were to enter into a time of such tremendous spiritual opportunity. And, and that was what I was saying last week. We have to see this the way the masters see it. You know, I, I myself have had a certain amount of anxiety and that anxiety has been primarily based on, you know, are we ready? Are we doing enough? Are we going to just be so upset with ourselves later for looking back? I mean, I'm still this way because I cook casually and not regularly, but every time I throw away something edible you know the ends of the zucchini the outside leaves of the cabbage my mind asks myself is there going to be a time when I just wish I had those outside leaves of the cabbage you know is it going to get that tough and um, you know we have to be reasonable we can't we can't become neurotic about this we still have to live in the flow I mean, even when we would ask Swamiji, well, should we continue with our school building plans and our beautification? Oh, by all means, he would say. You have to live. You can't just freeze. But then he talks about in here, and this is the next part of the lesson, you know. He really talks about being prudent in the light of the, of the very real possibility. You know, the very real possibilities are based on several things. You can take them from any angle you want. You can take it because Paramahansa Yogananda said it was so. You can take it, because Swami Kriyananda has greatly expanded and endorsed what Paramahansa Yogananda said, you can take it from just kind of looking around. I mean, I know a lot of us probably because of an intuitive awareness of the world we live in, but there's always just been this this intuitive feeling in my heart that it was out of balance. And when you just kind of see how people are spending money, how much people are spending money, the kind of expectations that especially, or or all people, but especially young people have, about just what life is supposed to give them. And then uh, entitlement is the word that is the common word, but how Swamiji talks about it here, of people becoming passive in their expectation of wealth. And that is the karmic condition that just has to be shifted. Um, And then he just talks about, you know, Trying not to be in debt, and he talks about hard assets, you know putting putting hard assets, putting cash money into silver and gold. i mean it's it's so funny in this lesson because he becomes so concrete here, you know, and he just sort of puts that forward, and he 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 likens this this time, and it's very, very sobering. He likens this time to the time when Hitler was rising in Germany. And some of the Jews believed that something was going to happen and left Europe and some thought, Oh, it can't happen here and they stayed. You know, and many families split and then the family that left continued the line and the family that stayed was annihilated. And he he again he he tries to get this phrase across, you know, to be realistic is not to be negative. It's not even to be unoptimistic, it's just to be realistic. It's to learn the lessons of history, see the handwriting on the wall, understand human nature enough to see where this is probably going. And so he talks about, we have one phrase from Master. He said, money won't be worth the paper it's printed on. We have the example of hyperinflation as it happens. We use the example of Germany where you know, the man gets paid in a wheelbarrow full of coins and someone leaves the money and steals the wheelbarrow which is the sort of the classic story of you know something of real value which was not the money it was a very short period of time but at the end of that time of course the currency collapsed so all of the you know the cash money that you had saved is really nothing but paper and if it if the system that backs it i mean i'm i mean anybody listening to this would just know that i'm a first grader i don't understand any of this i'm a devotee i'm a little ashram girl so i sort of live in a, 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 an odd reality with this, which is I, I neither do nor want to profoundly understand the economic flows. I look at it in very simple terms. But there's a certain common sense to that. Plus, you know, with the governments doing what they're doing these days, especially what the United States has begun to do, which is everything is about how we're promising to pay everybody everything. And and there's no, there's no source for generating that money. So, I mean, the, the phrase that Swami uses is, is they print it. I don't think it's quite the same as just Obama saying, you know, I'd like another 50 billion, please. You know, start the presses. I think there's some, some more integrated system. Again, I'm revealing my total ignorance. <coughs> but that is what's happening. And those who have very good minds for this thing keep talking about it. <coughs> so it's worth considering. And I know, I, I've had lots of discussions with lots of different people. Cost of silver, the cost of gold, whether it's a good investment, whether it's a bad investment. I don't know, to me it's like, why not? I, I just have the feeling of imminent collapse if you're holding savings, at least some of it. And it, as a community also, there's a, one of my friends who <coughs> has put a lot more energy into the silver and gold question basically put it like this, you know, if enough of us who are involved in our communities put enough of our assets into silver and gold and if, in fact, currency collapses and collectively we have enough hard assets, you know, we could save a lot of our system. We could save a lot of what we have if even, you know, just a few people put savings that we have that way into it. So I think it's worth seriously considering. So I... I, I have no credentials for saying that. My credentials are entirely entirely that I'm a devotee. So if you want to come back to me with conversations about the value of silver and gold, you're going to be over my head in about a minute and a half. I'm working with it from a totally different angle. And I know it did get the Jews in a lot of trouble in Germany. At least that's what people say. One of the things that happened is when that German economic collapse happened, the tradition of the Jewish people was to keep a certain amount of their money in gold. And they had something of value and a lot of people didn't, which did not make them any more popular. So it didn't really help them in that sense, but there was a whole lot of other uh, factors at play there. Did you have a a question? I just feel obligated to, you know, put my, shall I call it, my two cents worth into that argument. Especially I feel like in the context of our community, um, it could end up being very important for us as a collective. Because none of us are individually that wealthy, but a lot of us have a little bit.
2: Yes, well, mm-hmm. I heard Swami say what you're saying, uh-huh. uh, just when I was in India. and uh, But he, he said it, he was running through it, and he said, and so buying silver and gold, he said, but you can't eat silver and gold, so you need land. Well, that's <laughs> the, that's so the next piece of it. I just had to say No, of course, I'm not finished. <laughs> but...
0: Um, you know, in our, in our environment, in an urban environment that we live in, you know, we are here, and I'll, I'll talk because a lot of people in our community and, and listening to this over the internet, I mean, there, there are several realities. One is we're, part of, we're already part of a community. We're already doing a lot of what Master asked us to do. We've banded together. Swami goes at great length in this chapter and talks about, you know, making alliances with other people so you can help each other. Um, the one thing that we're not free to do in the present circumstances is leave the circumstances we're in. We, we simply can't abandon the environment we're in, even though at this point this, is not an, this does not fit the criteria of what Swami is describing to us. He's describing to us to be farther away from an urban area, to own your own land. And uh, we, we neither own the land that we're on, um, nor are we that far away from an urban area. And many people are not. Um, so, and for many people, and this is just a, this is a tricky question. I don't exactly know how to answer it. You know, many people do not feel inwardly guided, or just don't know how to begin. Just folding up everything and going off somewhere else. But you know, this is the picture of the Jews who did and didn't leave Germany. Um, so there's a, a slight uneasiness. But I think I'll just deal with our position as Ananda. Um, the the vulnerability of the position that we're in is that we are, there are a lot of, uh, we're in a, a relatively dense population area, and even if we, as a small collective, are somewhat self-sufficient, we're still in a relatively dense population area, we do not know how much um, unrest is going to develop in that population, and what kind of consequences there will be for that. Um, We do have a place to go, but it's, you know, four hours by car away from us, and that could be a very long distance if something happened, something developed fast. Um, The ideal thing, which Swamiji has just stood right where I'm standing and said to us, is, you know, you need to get land that's a little farther outside of town, and you need to begin to cultivate it as a farm, and you need to develop it as a place where you all can go. Who can do that? You know, we, we don't know where to go with that thought because, and he himself said, I know that's very expensive. I don't know how you're going to be able to do that. Again, these are things that like cross my mind later and think, well, we should have figured out a way. But that's what he wants us. He wants us to have a place that's closer that could, could shelter us all and feed us all for a time if we needed to. Um, it's still there. It's still a very, very valid idea. Um, I keep waiting for Divine Mother to help us. And so far, I don't see how that's going to happen. I don't see, it hasn't happened yet. I don't want to phrase it that way. I don't see, I don't, I haven't seen the opening exactly. So in the meantime, we do have a reasonably large piece of property. We do have a very arable, I mean, we do have a good climate. We have, you know, secured our position in, in certain ways that will help. Um, and our immediate um, environment is very civilized and not likely to, we're not on the edge, uh, we're not in the middle of a city, we're not on the edge of areas that could go, um, that become could become very upset, very um, unsafe. Maybe it will, but, but it's not a, immediate. We have a certain protection. And after that, we have to put our faith in God. You know, so we're doing what we can. Otherwise, we have to abandon the work we're doing. And on the on the, in 1987, or whenever it was, when there was a huge uh, earthquake here. Uh, and it wasn't a huge earthquake, but it was the biggest earthquake we had. And the power went out and there was just, there was a, you know, it was a real moment in time because all the power was down. Our, our community didn't lose its power, but as soon as you went outside of our community, all the streets were dark. I had a class to give that night and uh, David and I both had to teach that night. I, I wouldn't get in the car. He drove and I rode my bike. <laughs> So I sort of kissed him goodbye and said that I thoroughly enjoyed living with him and I hoped to see him again. And he drove here and I rode my bike. <laughs> I just didn't want to get in the car. And uh, I rode my bike through these dark streets, you know, streets that were normally had street lights and houses because as soon as I got off the property, there was no power. And uh, a lot of people were on the porches or in the streets, listening to radios or being outside, you know, things that were not normal at all. And uh, I just had the profound sense of how obviously in time of crisis, uh, unless and until it is really unsafe and therefore foolish, of course we have to stay here. How could we leave? You know, that's exactly the time when you have to stay because that's who we are. You know, this temple has to be a point of um, refuge. And so we haven't... We haven't directed all our assets toward disaster preparation by, you know, by an enormous long shot. We don't have that many assets to direct, and we haven't directed them all that way. But nonetheless, I do think it's wise to make whatever preparations you inwardly feel are appropriate and collectively, and do it with the thought of, I'm doing this for everyone, not with
2: the thought of, I'm doing this for myself. Greg Braden writes something about, is it, writes about zero point? Greg Braden. Uh And um, he talks a lot of what Swami has said, and uh, the predictions are similar. His is from a sense of the magnetic resonance of the earth and Uh so forth. Uh But um, he said, and he talks about all the things that could happen, all the immune diseases and things yeah. that are happening. And then he says, but if we don't live, if we let our nervousness and our thoughts of what could happen and so forth keep us from living, he said we won't have taken advantage of the opportunity to get ready for what's going to happen. Well, that's we will exactly, miss that opportunity. That's
0: exactly the truth. Preparation is on many levels and i've i've just been feeling my way personally just trying to figure out what's right and what's not right and how strong to push it and just how much to do and i'm i've begun to feel more comfortable with a kind of balanced middle ground on this his lessons are really seriously interesting what swami writes here about you know he's talking to people who aren't already in community to make a community basically and then make that community in a in a place where you can be self-sufficient. That's really what he's saying. Where, you, where you, He's not really saying to go to the edge of civilization and camp out there. He's just saying, you know, make your plans according to the, what's likely to happen. And I, I feel that that's, you know, where we are and what we're doing. I mean, you know, it seems like a very sensible reality for us. You know, you, you think in terms of just common sense things, like even Costco sells this bucket, you know, of dehydrated food that you can just put in your house. It's a, like a month for a person or something like that. It's like $70. It's like, that's a really good idea. I mean, think how many people use the Safeway. And think how fast everything in the Safeway is going to be gone. You know, just, it's just common sense, things like that. To just have enough supplies around so that if you couldn't get anything else into your reality for even for a, a number of weeks, that you could still just go on. These are um, common sense preparations. Now, is that, are we okay with that? Because that's about as much as I want to give to that, which is a very good subject to talk about. But much more profoundly, and this is what this is all about, place your faith in God above all. He expects you to use common sense, but don't concern yourself too fearfully with finding a place of perfect safety. That's how he puts it. Because what's really happening is not to be passive and to generate the right kind of magnetism. And that's really what we're working with. Um, and this is where Swami talks about energy as your most essential investment. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about now. He, he makes this very simple statement. He says, all human energy is primarily mental and it's an it's amazing com, uh, concept to really meditate on. And, and Swami's given us many examples of this. The story that he so often tells, but it's a very dynamic one, is let's imagine that you had a, a a big party at your house and a lot of people were there and you had a great time, but they left late and the house was a total mess and you were just too tired and you just went to bed. And the next morning you woke up exhausted and barely got yourself to work in time spent the whole day just staring at the clock, could hardly wait for the day to end, finally go home with one thought, which is I'm just going to go to sleep as soon as I can get into the house. You come in, you see that the house is a mess. You've completely forgotten what a shambles you left it in. You just sort of push aside all the debris and just try to make your way to your bedroom and the phone rings. And you pick up the phone And it's an old friend who's just in town for one night who suddenly finds himself free. And can you meet for dinner? And then maybe we can spend the evening together. Yes, you say, I'll be there. And, you know, in five minutes you've freshened yourself up and you're out the door. And then about midnight, when you finally come back to your house and see what a mess it is, you remember how tired you were. But we all have our examples of, of just astonishing incidences where we're so tired... But then something sparks our interest or demands our willpower, and then all of a sudden we just aren't anymore. Because we either because we had to, and therefore we did it because we had to, but therefore we wanted to because we had to, or something um made us willing to put out energy. So what what Swamiji is really wanting to help us to understand and this is the this is the primary way that we prepare ourselves because Difficult situations are only difficult if we believe we can't cope. I mean, that's what makes it seem difficult for the most part. Of course, there's realities such as watching other people suffer. But everything comes down to a feeling that I can't deal with it. That somehow I don't know what to do. I'm not going to be able to do it. And the ability or inability to deal with things is almost always a question of whether you feel you have the energy for it. If you have energy... And willingness, which is what creates energy, willingness more than willpower is what creates energy, then it's just a situation. It's not a problem. It's just something that you have to deal with. When Ananda Village, mostly, many of the houses burned down in 1976 in June, and we had a, you know, it was fortunate it was the beginning of the summer, so we had the whole summer to clear up the uh, mess that had been made and also to reestablish ourselves before winter came it wasn't, you know, very few of us got sad. I don't really know if very many people got sad. Even people who lost their homes didn't necessarily get that sad. But by the end of August, we were tired (laughs) because it really took a lot of energy to cope with that. I mean, not only did we have to carry on with our regular lives, but we had this entirely other huge thing to deal with. And it was so disruptive. It took a lot of energy. Um, and it was a happy kind of fatigue because we had faced the difficulty and we dealt with it. But also what Swami is saying here is invest in developing yourself. Developing your capacity to generate energy within the, uh, within the parameters of who you are and what you can do because age and physical condition um, are real factors. I'm not pretending that we'd be completely unrealistic here. But work within whatever your realistic parameters are to generate both quality and quantity of energy. And essentially make it a habit before it's too difficult to be able to do that. I once very unkindly said to someone who was, to my mind, making a mountain out of really what was even less than a molehill. It was just barely a bump in the road. And and I was genuinely concerned. It was not the right thing to have said, but it was a truth I mean, just I said to her, you know, really, be careful, or God will send you a real test. Meaning, don't don't collapse over every little tiny thing, because you know, then if something really big comes to you, what will you do? You have to develop the habit now of just being able to just go forward, and that's where Swami says, the greater the willpower is, the greater the flow of energy. I really think that the energization exercises are one of the best disaster preparation techniques we have because it's being able to say, I will have the energy and I will do what I have to do. You know, It's, it's an interesting thing what we develop. I, I, I haven't been seriously tested in a long time, so I don't want to be presumptuous about this, but in my little bits of life, I enjoy the fact that pretty much if I have to do it, I can do it. You know, because I've been doing energization exercises. That's what I feel. I've been doing energization for a long time, and therefore, there's a certain just capacity. My my total capacity. I, I don't want to exaggerate this because I think of Swamiji and what he can do. And you know, I've, I'm a an ant compared to that. But within the little scope of our lives, energization really works. It it develops in us. That's what I'm really trying to testify to. It develops in us this thought that I can generate energy with willpower and that I don't have to be subject um, to the vagaries of mood or the vagaries of a thousand other things. And even if we're not adept at it, just the continuous practice of it really helps a lot. Um, Then Swamiji talks in this lesson really astonishingly Uh, elsewhere let me just say this I think it's later in the lesson he uses the phrase greed is in the process of magnetizing to the world depression he was just saying that greed greed worldwide greed is in the process of magnetizing its opposite greed is in the process at present of attracting global poverty that's the word he says (laughs) it is also alienating mankind at present from divine blessings so I'm going to I'll come back to that in a minute but what Swami talks about right now in this part of the lesson is so interesting and i i 've just been um, fascinated contemplating it. He really talks about what the what 's at the core of the delusion about money and reflecting on this lesson i 've often i 've had to deal so much through the years with people 's struggles with relationships, with marriage, with their children, you know, the romantic side of life and the kind of um, fracturing and chaos that has set in as we shift from the form of Kali Yuga into the reality of Dwapara Yuga. And I've often thought that relationships were really the karmic trial of our times. But actually thinking about what he's writing here, I really think money is what it is. I think because it's 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 a misunderstanding about about what money really brings us, I think that's causing a difficulty, and I'm feeling my way on this too. I don't want to be too certain of it because it's just, it's a, it's new thoughts for me also um, and it's also so easy to talk casually about money because we have been such an affluent country for so long, you know, and all of us grew up in almost all of us grew up in relative privilege and almost all of us did not live through the last depression you know some of us did but not most of us didn't most of us were have been taken care of i w- i think i was joking last week about the girl who was talking about living in the place where the food is not all that terrific and i told her it's a really good idea to get used to being poor you know you're not really rich you're just a child and you're living on your parents money and there's going to be a time when you're not going to be living on your parents money and and This thought form that people have, especially young people, that they just don't know where money comes from. And because people don't see their parents' work anymore, and because parents take care of their children in such a generous way, uh, most children have no real concept. One man told me, one man who's actually fairly good with money, he told me that his father, and it was an appropriate thing for these two boys. But at a certain point when the boys were like 12 or 13, the father basically turned over to the boys to manage the budget of the money that he would spend on them in a year or in a month. And they actually had to work with it in a real way. And if, for example, they failed to take into account that their shoes were going to wear out or they were going to outgrow their shoes, then his father was strong enough to just leave them with holy shoes or if they didn't have enough money to buy their winter jacket because they'd squandered it on some expensive piece of sports equipment, then they just let them be cold. You know, which most uh, parents wouldn't have the capacity to do that without being cruel. But so he really grew up with the concept of of where what the money flow was about. Um, nowadays, because children are so busy building their resumes, you know, very few of them work. And even when... Um, Sometimes in our school Gary tries to get the children to be more responsible for the money that they're going to spend on things he can't always get the cooperation of the parents because the parents don't really see why the child should waste his time working for 7 dollars an hour when he could or should be doing all the things that are going to build his resume or you know inflate his education but understanding where money comes from and the value of it and what it's about is so fundamental to success in life. Um, so he he describes Swami, you know, quotes the obvious thing that money is often listed as one of mankind's three great delusions. Okay. Now, before I go into this whole subject, if we're going to take a break at all, this would be the moment to take it. So let's take a short break and then I'll come back to this. When we talk about money, we have to realize that we're not trying to be impractical. You know, this world is set up in a certain way that money is the way we can measure. It's it's the energy exchange. It's the way we measure our... It's a very good karmic teacher. So we're not talking about it as a negative force in itself. And in fact, this is a whole course about prosperity and you know the the example that Master said, that Swami has said, is that we live in a very natural way. We're not trying to be impoverished. So when we talk about here about money being one of the three great delusions, and we're going to talk about how and why it is, it's because it's very very important that we get ourselves in right relationship to money. And part of it is to really understand what's positive about it and what's not positive about it, because there's there's so much a mystery, and and a fear and confusion, I think, among many people. So first he says, that it's one of mankind's three great delusions, and those three delusions are sexuality, um, wine, which means intoxicants, which is the desire to blank your consciousness out, and then um, the last time is money. And so I'm not going to talk about the other two because that's a whole different discussion. He says, money is listed with these three for several reasons, and these are the reasons. The first is the expectation that if we have money, we'll be happy, that money and happiness are, are are the same. The second is the expectation of security, which is an obvious thought. If I have money, I'll be more secure. And the third is the false belief that with money, one becomes powerful, important, and superior to those who don't have money. And so it's just a very interesting start because once we can understand where the delusion of money comes in, then we can relate to it in a wholesome way and be alert to when those delusions begin to influence us and put ourselves back in balance. And, of course, this is the key not only to happiness but also to prosperity because it's getting into the right relationship. And then he says, what makes these um, three delusions... Wait, well, let me go back on a moment. He says, first of all, that with the sense of superiority money gives us is that... Um, it leads us to uh, having uh, disdain for other people. And, it, you know, I'm wealthy. I've managed to pull my trip together. You haven't gotten your act together. You're always impoverished, or those people don't work, or this, this sense that I've accomplished something that other people haven't accomplished. And as soon as we start taking any identity to ourself, that strengthens the ego. That's what Swami says. The the, the great flaw in that, above all, is that it, it gives extra strength to the ego. And once the ego has power like that, it begins to cut us off, you know, from a, a, a warm, embracing relationship with other people. And as soon as we begin to do that, the heart begins to shrink in on itself. Now, what Swami is talking about when he talks about this is that If we have wrong attitudes, then those wrong attitudes automatically create constriction in our consciousness, and constriction in our consciousness causes us to suffer. All suffering is due to a contractive attitude toward life. And it it doesn't matter how much of anything you have, if inside your own consciousness you're in pain, that's all you ever experience. And since our true nature is to be one with our infinite spirit. And since once we become one with our infinite spirit, it opens us up in the sense of compassionate unity with all of mankind. If the presence of money in our life causes us to back away from that, then inherently it's going to be detrimental to our well-being. Even if you're comfortable, even if you can pay off your bills, even if you don't have that particular anxiety, you're still fostering within yourself a karmic condition that will leave you painful. So that's that's one thought. Okay? Then it, here's the, the, one of the most interesting ones I found was him really trying to explain why wealth doesn't make you happy. And the way he, he writes about it is, if you have the capacity to buy what you want, then you often do buy what you want. And your mind often goes into the channel of, oh, I'd like to have that. Oh, it would be nice if I had that. You know, this corner of the house, it would really be so much prettier if we changed it around like this. When we moved into the house that we're living in, Chela Bhavan, and it needed to be refurbished because it it had been 20 years. It needed, you know, some new carpets. It needed um, new paint. We were going to use it a little differently than it had been used before. It needed to be set up for a new reality. But it was amazing to me to just sort of watch how that process just began to roll like a rock downhill. Oh, well, you know, that cabinet was really never really well designed. If we change that, then we could do this and we could set this up over here and this little section, we just make a few changes here and then out in the backyard we could do this. And it was creative, it was fun. And it was obvious to me that if I'd had unlimited money, I could have just gone on and on and on and I know you know people in the world who remodel houses you know buy houses and remodel them make gardens and remodel them and it could be worse they're doing something creative they're often leaving behind a legacy of beauty or harmony if they have the capacity to do that but see what happens is the mind is always going toward what what do I not have that I could have and if you have enough money to always be able to get what you don't have. But oddly enough, what Swami writes is that you gradually develop a sense of impoverishment because there's always something that you want. There's never a sense of inner contentment. And having the capacity to fulfill those desires because once you start fulfilling desires, they just keep feeding on themselves. I remember this young man came to Swamiji once and he really wanted to go to India. And um, that was in the years before very few of us had traveled there. And, And in order to go, he was going to have to pull out of the responsibilities he had within our community. He was going to have to sort of just abandon that project and just go off and do this thing himself. And Swamiji also said to him that, I don't think you will find what you want spiritually in India. I just don't think it's going to work for you in the way that you want it to work. He said it not quite that bluntly, but almost. And the man said, well, I'm so restless. If I, I have such a desire to go. If I don't fulfill it, I'll be so restless. And Swamiji said, with a great deal of force, he said, you have millions of desires inside of you. If you start thinking to, to um, escape them by fulfilling them, there is literally no end to it. And uh, that had always vividly stayed in my mind that, in fact, that's true. You know, it's not like we can just get them all fulfilled if our mindset is I just need to fulfill my desires and then I'll be fine. And I, I remember when I was so poor living at Ananda Village in the first years that there was really, it, there was no possibility of buying anything. The only thing that we could buy was food and propane. Period. And I never felt even slightly denied. Because there was no possibility of buying anything. And so it never crossed my mind to buy anything. It was, it was really very, very easy. You would think that would be difficult, but it wasn't difficult at all. Because it was out of the question. So we entertained ourselves without money. And we never thought that if we had a mood, we could solve it by spending money if we had a personal sense of lack, you know, of of unworthiness, that we could solve it by spending money. There was no money. So you had to solve everything on another level. And this is where Swami says, often people who are quite impoverished are not nearly as unhappy as people who are wealthy think they are. Because people who are wealthy are constantly filled with desires that they're fulfilling all the time. And they project upon people who have less money that they must be unutterably frustrated. But in fact, often they're not frustrated at all because they just don't live in a world in which we spend money to make ourselves happy. And they don't live in a world in which they constantly think they need to buy something because it's just not an option for them. I'm not talking about, you know, rat-infested tenements necessarily, but you understand what the principle is. But you see, this is what we have to really watch in ourselves deeply and profoundly watching ourselves because sort of the middle range of money is a very trickle, tricky point where we can buy some things. And just how much of our time and thought and energy is going toward thinking if I had that, then I would be better. And And how much can we just turn that question over and over back into just an inner sense of why would I need that? And our society now is fostering Such, you know, an extraordinary sense of what you need to have. It's just completely out of its mind um, with uh, the cost of things. You know, shoes and purses, especially, I mean, I think of women's fashions and clothes and how much people spend and what people spend on their weddings and on their wedding dresses and just goes on and on and on. And this, you know, you see people coming, I mean, I'll use a wedding as an example. You see people approaching not, you know, the people in our world but people, just with this thought of how much money has to be spent um to create a, a, a marriage. And having performed a great many wedding ceremonies, I can say that there's no relationship. You know some of the most expensive weddings have produced the nicest marriages, some of the least expensive weddings have not produced good marriages. It's just but but definitely spending money does not have anything to do with the quality. Of, of what's going on. So that is like a fascinating aspect of it To that how having a lot of desires is in itself a sign of poverty, inner poverty. Because otherwise we would be content within ourselves. Amazing idea, isn't it? And that's why he says, because it is impossible to satisfy every desire and because... It's a vicarious pleasure at best. Often people who are able to spend all that money find themselves more and more frantically unhappy. And then he, he, he quotes the statement that many more people commit suicide who are wealthy than are poor because they're just frantically draining their energy out spending money. And that was the um, uh, statement of Sabina Wormbrand that people who've lived only to fulfill their desires when... They can't do that anymore. They just don't know where to go. I was very—I've been very struck in India. Sometimes when we've been shopping, like shopping for wool shawls or something like that, every so often you'll see an Indian family, a whole family that has come in to buy a blanket. And you know, the, and they all sit around and they look at all the blankets, and everybody has to look at the blanket. They're going—and they're going to go, home and they bought one blanket. But you know, it's a—it's a really big event. They bought one blanket. They don't go out and buy a blanket every so often when they feel like it. And they don't have a lot of extra blankets. This is a blanket. This is a very important thing. And once they have it, they're going to keep it, you know, until it it literally doesn't exist anymore. And and the truth is, I think they get a lot more pleasure of buying that one blanket than a lot of other people do because it's a a considered action that doesn't come in the context of um, every day being satiated. You know, that's what we're living with these days. Somebody told me that you can tell the architecture when, when buildings were built by the size of the closets. <laughs> that, you know, nowadays they build houses and, you know, the woman has a dressing room for a closet. You know, she has all the racks and she has the drawers and she has all the shoe racks. and I can remember my mother's closet and we were comfortable, but I remember how much space there was in my mother's closet. You know, she had a few nice dresses. But she didn't have dozens of nice dresses. What would she do with dozens of nice dresses? You know, she just had a few. Helen Purcell remembers growing up, of course, she there were nine children in her family, but they were comfortable, very comfortable. But she had her school uniform and her school shoes. And then she had her good dress. You know, as a child, she had her good dress. That's what she had. I remember our Indian friends, one of my Indian friends, saying to me, coming to America was so astonishing to them, especially about children. He said, I go to my son's friends' homes. The child, first of all, they're they're startled, the child has his own room. I mean, that's enough in itself to amaze them. It has a whole room that's his room. And then he says, and that room is full of things that are owned by the child. And, and you know, it's just like why would a child have a full room of possessions? But in fact, it's very common, isn't it? We don't, we don't even think of that as odd. To them, it's, it's not merely a question of wealth or lack of it. It's why would, you, why would you impose that on a child? The child himself has no sense that he has to have all those possessions to be happy. But they develop the sense that they have to have those possessions. But you see, look what it's doing to them right from the start right from the start, it's, I want that, I want this, I want that, I want that. And they have tantrums because they want it. And it just, and then they're burdened with all that stuff. I remember my sister-in-law, she raised three children and her, the rooms of her children were wonderfully spare. And she would, you know, we, we rarely bought their children presents, but she would plead with us, please don't buy my children anything. They don't need anything. You know, they, they had sporting equipment. They had the things that they needed and they were comfortable. But, you know, she just didn't fill their rooms with stuff because we pass that right on to our children. And then the whole thing gets going in the, in the next generation's mind too. I have to have all this money because I need all these things. And there's this inner sort of like, how, well, how will I get along without all these things? Because it's it's, it's such a profound sense of lack. It becomes an emergency to have all those things. Now, the last uh, point that he says here is that the belief that when one has wealth, one is now secure. And yes, this is a balancing point. If you can't pay your rent um, and you get knocked out onto the street, that's a little bit difficult. So we're not talking about being unsensible. But there's still this thought in our minds that you know, if I have money, then I will be safe from. And we list out all the things that we will be safe from. Um, but the, the flaw in that, that Swami describes, is not a common sense use of wealth, but that we make ourselves secure with this external object and we no longer rely upon our own creativity and our energy. And our sense of security does not come either from God or from faith in our own capacity to meet challenges. It comes from the fact that I have this money in the bank and now I'm safe. And and what he says about that is because if we become increasingly passive in our relationship to security being the money that's in the bank, then it's very easy for that sense of security to become one of fear. Because we, we are now relying on something completely outside ourselves to make ourselves feel safe. I laughed once, this woman, uh, I was coming to her house actually to perform a wedding for her daughter and I found her uh, with a pipe wrench at the water heater, fixing the water heater. And I sort of said something about, you know, why, you know, what are you doing? She says, well, I always like to keep my hand in because you never know when I'm just going to have to do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I really appreciated that attitude and I really remembered it, which is even if one is in a position where other people will take, do things for you or you can afford to pay people to do it or whatever the situation might be, the, the most important thing is not to become passive or have a sense of um, inability to cope in any other way. And that's how he talks about people lose wealth is because they become passive. So that leads us, and then of course he he points out that, you know, wealth is not a protection from physical illness, from natural cataclysm, from disappointment, from all the things that still happen. And once again, this idea that once I have that money, I'm secure, um, unless there's a corresponding personal development that goes with it, you're not secure, because no one is secure. But then he goes on, it's very important, none of this is to say that wealth is in itself a misfortune. Everything can be enjoyed even you know the fruits of having earned a lot of money provided certain basic conditions are met first one must enjoy money and indeed all things in moderation and one must rigidly exclude the temptation to define himself by the money that you have or the things that you're enjoying and second he must employ his gifts to be of service to others and not only for selfish ends And third, he must develop non-attachment, realizing that nothing possessed can be permanently one's own. The do-it-well thing for today or yesterday was nothing that can be measured, weighed, timed, or physically hoarded is yours except temporarily. (laughs) I love that. Measured, weighed, timed, or physically hoarded. But what he's saying there is, and above all, okay, if you have money and just because you can spend 1500 dollars on a pair of shoes there's a certain point at which maybe it's just not right to spend 1500 dollars on a pair of shoes you know unless there's some just overwhelming reason why that makes sense in the moment because it's just it's out of balance one of the wealthiest men in the world really the man who created duty-free shopping you know that whole incredible thing that you see there the man who created that is that eccentric millionaire who takes public transportation and has one pair of shoes. And his response is, I have one pair of shoes because I only have one pair of feet. <laughs> you know, like, what would I do with all those shoes? And and it's a... Uh, th- that's a very sensible situation. And actually, I happen to know, because I have a friend of a friend who knows that man, that man has consciously set himself the goal of giving away all of his money before he dies. So he's been, you know, working very hard to do really big things with big money because but that's how he sees it. And he'll probably be very wealthy in his next life too. Because he's enjoyed it in moderation. Of course I'm sure if you know if he's had children he sent them to good schools, I'm sure he's had good medical care, I'm sure he's, you know, lived in the ways that are appropriate. But he only has one pair of feet. So why would he have a closet full of shoes? So and then the second thing is Um, And then obviously he doesn't define himself. He defines himself... You see, if you generate money on your own with all the rules that are listed here, you have a generous attitude, you have a creative attitude, you have an in-tune-with-God attitude. And that is how you're defining yourself. And then money comes, you see, as a consequence of all those right attitudes. But it's the right attitudes that you've actually defined yourself by. And therefore, whether the money is or isn't there... Your inner wealth is exactly the same. You've defined yourself by your energy. And this is what Swamiji is saying. Your energy is your real wealth and your real investment. Your energy and your consciousness. And if in addition you get money, then you use your right consciousness to use his gifts to be of help to others. I mean, let's start with tithing, which I spoke about last week, so I don't have to say again. But you, you say, okay, what good can this money do? This money came to me, you know, it's a responsibility. It's not a prize that I'm allowed to squander. Um, I was talking to a friend who has a lot of money, and I was just saying to her, you know, that's just not a responsible way to use it. What you've been given is is directorship over a very large amount of energy. And you don't want to use that energy to make a nuclear bomb, and you don't want to use that energy to weaken individuals around you. And you don't want to use that energy to buy yourself out of, buy your way out of difficulties that you really need to face to foster in yourself wrong attitudes merely because you can. And that's what money becomes. It's just a responsibility. So how can I use this energy responsibly just like you would get up in the morning and think, how can I responsibly use this day? It's exactly the same reality and not only for selfish ends. Swami is often fond of talking about the conversation he had at the dinner table once in his own family when Swamiji just said, I can't imagine having a lot of money and using it only for myself. And someone in his family responded, now that's an unusual attitude. And Swami thought to himself, how could you have any other attitude? How could you ever imagine that if you were given great wealth that it was only intended for you? But of course, it's as I was talking the other day, it's his nature to give. So to him, it's unfathomable to him that you would be self-centered. But many people, imagining that that money is going to give them the sense of security and power and importance that they crave, when they get it in their hands, they start playing out that fantasy. So it's quite possible for very noble-minded people to generate wonderful wealth. But if you want to keep it and have it in the next lifetime, this is the way to do it. And especially if you've inherited it, Swamiji has often said, You know, you have to have the same magnetism as if you had generated it yourself. You can't, again, allow that money to make you passive because then you will either lose it in this incarnation or you will not see it in future incarnations. But if you are as dynamic um, with it, however you attained it, as if you had had to earn it, then that's the way to work with it. And then he says non-attachment. And then there's just a few more thoughts and then we'll let it go. He says... Finally, one must understand that the source of all happiness is in oneself, never in outside things, and develop an inner life, you know, and offer all that we are to God. And then we have, we are able to material success through yogic principles. We can exercise yogic principles to do what it is that we came here to do, which may include amassing money in order to serve a good cause without becoming attached to it, enjoying it in moderation because happiness comes with from within. And then all of a sudden we're, we're out of this cycle where, where greed demands a balancing poverty. We're no longer greedy. We're just simply behaving appropriately in the flow. Okay? I think those are just really marvelous ideas to keep in mind. Okay? Will that do it for tonight? All right. Thank you very much.